everyone, and welcome to another episode of Equals. This is Nadia. And this is Max. Welcome, everyone. It's my first episode of the season. I'm excited. Yeah, really excited. Great to be doing it with you, Nadia. So what's news in Washington this time of year? The big news in Washington is that the cicadas have emerged from their 17-year underground time, and they're out here in the open. Have you heard of these things? Is that the same as a cicada? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Cicada, cicada, yes. It's a, it's the same way that tomatoes are the same as tomatoes. Okay, so what, you mean those big, horrible insects? I mean, there is one big camp of people that, that would call them big, horrible insects. And there is another big camp. Actually, I just read this really nice article, which put it into a much more pleasant perspective for me, which is when the cicadas come out, you know that the world is functioning okay. And so in this crazy time that we've been having with um, with the pandemic, on the other hand, the cicadas are still on their natural 17-year rhythm. So this is like a specific species of cicadas that come out. And yeah, they kind of look like um, grasshoppers or locusts, but actually their wings are really beautiful once they come into adulthood. Oh, sorry, you're not selling me on this. No, it sounds horrible. <laughs> um, I'm really, really glad I'm not there. Your, your house is crawling with massive, horrible, creepy crawlies right now. <laughs> There are probably a few inside the house. The kids keep playing with them and bringing them in as well. So that's, that's not helping. But yeah, there are a lot in the backyard. And people <sighs> even eat them. Like I might even eat them. I might even eat one. They're chocolate covered cicadas that I'm going to buy. I, I'm actually feeling really quite physically ill now. Um, if I do do it, I will take a picture and I will send it to you. Yeah, please. So who are we interviewing today? <laughs> We are interviewing the uh, two of the patriotic millionaires. The patriotic millionaires are this amazing pressure group in the US that are basically a bunch of incredibly rich people that campaign for higher taxes on the rich, higher minimum wages and fighting inequality. So really, really interesting. We're interviewing two of the founders and Erica, Erica Payne is the president of Patriotic Millionaires. She's a brilliant political strategist. She's served as deputy national finance director for the Democratic National Committee, and she's worked on a ton of different political campaigns and organizations. So I'm very excited to be talking with her. Yes, and we're also going to be uh, interviewing at the same time, uh, Morris Pearl, who's another founder of the Patriotic Millionaires. He uh, is the chair, um, and he was originally a managing director at BlackRock, the absolutely enormous investment firm. And Morris is an exceptionally rich man. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk, talk to both of them. Right. And they've co-authored this new book, Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. Um, and if that sounds like an intriguing title, go pick it up um, and listen to the interview because we'll be talking to them all about it. Brilliant. Let's do it. Let's do it. Well, welcome to you both, Erica and Morris. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're very excited to be here. And uh, we've given our listeners a really top line idea of what who the patriotic millionaires are and, and what it is that you stand for, but really want to hear it from you. Just who are the patriotic millionaires? The short answer is it's a group of rich millionaires who don't want to live in a country as unequal and unstable as this one is. We want to do something about it. Doing something about it requires a bunch of things, but one of them is that people like us, rich millionaires, paying higher taxes. Well, that's a, a very clear message and a clear mandate. Um, and I remember the first time I came across the Patriotic Millionaires a, a few years ago, 
the first thing that struck me was the name. And it certainly sounds like it's almost reclaiming the narrative on, you know, what it means to be patriotic. Just wondering, how is that name received even? And, and what can you say about getting the political communications right on this agenda? Well, Nadia, the name choice was very intentional. The reason I named the group initially the Patriotic Millionaires is that part of the purpose in doing this group was to attack the root premise of the conservative narrative around economics and taxes. The conservative narrative is, it's my money, I made it all by myself, and now you're coming in and giving it to undeserving poor people. And I believe that there's an inherent message in there that the undeserving poor people are probably black and brown communities. There's a huge amount of racism that is kind of built into the cake around our economic conversation. And so I wanted to attack that root premise and instead replace it with the premise that paying taxes is fundamentally part of your patriotic duty. And it is just incredibly unbecoming of you, you wealthy people to fuss about it as much as they do. I also, just to add on that point, we have had a number of presidential candidates who run bragging about how low the tax rate is that they pay. And I cannot imagine, like if you worked for a company and somebody came in to interview to be the CEO of the company and in their interview, they bragged about investing as little in your company as is humanly possible. Why would you hire that person? I wanted to make that kind of rhetoric on the campaign trail verboten. You've really created this growing movement here in the United States with the patriotic millionaires. And we're seeing the movement, the social movement more broadly evolving in this country. I'm wondering, you know, when we look to to the UK, to Europe, for example, what's your message to millionaires there? My message to millionaires there is frankly, being very rich is not enough. You have to have a stable society. Having the largest fortune in the world did not help Nicholas Romanoff. <laughs> yeah, it's well put. One of the challenges we get whenever we kind of call out the taxing the rich and exactly this, this narrative of, of low taxes is, uh, you know, the, the chestnut about philanthropy and the sense that, you know, particularly in the US, in fact, you know, philanthropy is big, you know, quite a lot of money is given away. It, you could, in fact, say that, you know, the rich in the US are far more generous than the rich in Europe, for instance, who, who really don't give much away at all. So how do you come back on this this argument that really, you know, there is a lot of philanthropy out there? Why, why, why are we worried? I think that's a ridiculous argument that the rich people make. You know, first of all, all their philanthropy together is not even 9% of the amount of money that the federal government spends here in the United States. But it's great. I mean, I'm all for rich people giving away as much money as they want to, to do whatever. But it it's not sufficient. It's not enough. Is it more, maybe at the risk of getting a bit personal, I mean, how have you got a lot richer during COVID-19? I mean, are you feeling a bit richer than usual? And, and what do you think about that? Yes. My family and I are far wealthier than we were before the pandemic started. Wow. You know, the whole billionaires have made over one and a half trillion dollars while over half a million of our countrymen have died from COVID. I mean, that's just nuts, isn't it? And it just, and what, I mean, what's it like being, being really rich and just kind of seeing your money just grow without having to do anything? I mean, it just must be such a strange feeling, you know, do you, how often do you check your bank balance? Well, uh, 
it's not strange for me. And no, I almost never look at my bank balance because I don't need to. I suppose not. Father-in-law told me the point of having a lot of money is to not have to think about money. That's so true. It's the sense that it just doesn't matter, does it? But so why why do these billionaires want an extra 10, 20, 30 billion? That's the bit I don't understand. You know, if you've got more money so you never have to worry again, why fight for that extra 10 billion, you know? Well, I mean, I'll just jump in here. I think um, it's two things. I think the first one is bragging rights. You know, there's a reason that Donald Trump pretended to be his own PR agent when he was trying to get on the Forbes 400. You know, I called um, I called a millionaire the other day to inquire as to the wealth of another millionaire because I was looking for a billionaire. And the millionaire I called knew within 10 seconds how much money this other person I was asking about had. And so it's bragging rights. And then the second piece is that there comes a point where somebody has so much money that it's not money anymore, it's power. And people want to have more power. And if they can look at their bank account or their holdings or their empires and feel that sense of greater power, I think that's actually what they're going for more than it is any any specific material gain or, or good or service that they can get with money that they wouldn't have gotten with less money. Is this something really masculine about this do you find that rich women and rich men are the same or is it just this kind of competition for how many billions you've got it just i don't know this 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 I don't know. I wonder whether there's a gender element to this as well as a race one. That was that was something that came into my head when you were saying that. Well, it wouldn't surprise me if there are probably some elements of um of, of gender built into that. But I mean the vast majority of super super rich people are um are older white men. And there just aren't as many women in that space. But I, I'm, you know, maybe they can get to be just as greedy and selfish when they get to be that rich as men folk have been. You know. Oh, I was just wondering what we see. We just saw recently the 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 divorce of Jeff Bezos, and and his wife has been a very progressive donor, hasn't she? And just seems very very different uh, in outlook to him. Um, I just yeah, it just makes me reflect on and maybe there's something about them all being white men. Uh, that is, 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 you know, creating some of this problem. I think that, Max, I've studied a fair amount of psychology. We had a psychologist on a power and money um, conference that we did the other day named Paul Piff. And people react to power um, in very similar ways. This psychologist ran an experiment where he rigged a bunch of Monopoly games. It's a brilliant experiment. And what he found was that within like 15 or 20 minutes of playing this Monopoly game that the rigged players knew was rigged in their favor. So maybe they'd get $400 pass and go or they got to roll two dice, whatever the set of advantages were, they knew that they were advantaged. Within 10 or 15 minutes, they started behaving more aggressively to the other players who were not advantaged. And in one amazing sort of moment of, um, of, of internal delusion, they, they observed one of the guys who, was rig- who had a rigged position in the game after the game, trying to mansplain to his fellow players how he had won naming none of the obvious reasons that it was in his favor, you know, but instead just like talking about his acumen with, you know, how he was moving his poodle around the border. Where it was. <laughs> so this is, something happens in people's brains when they get this advantage and, and, and studies have shown that. So why on earth would we create a society and a tax code that virtually guarantees that a tiny number of people 
are going to accumulate a disproportionate amount of income through an economy that is rigged in their favor. And then we deify them in the press. We want to hear what all the millionaires have to say about this, that and the other thing. It's nuts. I completely agree. I mean, I agree with you so much. It hurts, to be honest. <laughs> Just wondering, you know, what is the reaction? I mean, have you have you also lost a lot of rich friends by taking on your peers? And, you know, we're, we hear about this concept of being a traitor to your class and wonder, have you ever been accused of, of being a traitor to your class? And how does, that, how does that make you feel? Well, frankly, the answer is no, because almost everybody, when you talk to them privately, is on our side because they understand the problems of our nation getting more unequal and becoming more unstable. But a lot of people can't really speak out publicly about that. And I can tell you from my own firsthand experience, when I first started working on tax policy, I was doing an interview on television once. And after that, I was still working at BlackRock and somebody called the firm and they complained, oh, it's not right that somebody who's working on managing our money is in favor of us paying more taxes. And that's the thing that a lot of people just feel pressured not to speak out against anything that might bother some of their clients. Let's go to the industry. Let's let's go to the lobbying industry, especially. I mean, you you've written this book. It's brilliant. Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes and Lobbyists make the rich even richer. Um, and you've got this fabulous chapter on how to rig an economy to work for the rich. Let's say I were a billionaire, or, or let's say I'm still a millionaire and I, I have dreams of becoming a billionaire. How can I rig the system to get there? Take me through this. Walk me through my self-help guide on how I can use the system and manipulate it to work for me. The, for, there's a lot of reasons why rich people pay far lower taxes than people who work for a living. So I'm just going to go through a few things that are in our book. The main thing, we in the United States treat money differently for tax purposes depending on how you make it. There's one rate for people who work for a living, a lower rate for people who get investment income, long-term capital gains, and people who inherit money don't pay income taxes at all. So just for example, if I make $100,000 making profit by selling some stock and somebody like you makes $100,000 getting a paycheck every week and having taxes taken out of your paycheck, you will pay thousands of dollars in the U.S. federal income taxes. I won't pay one single penny. And that's just one of the most fundamental unfairnesses in the whole system. And frankly, that's how most of the very wealthy people don't have to pay much taxes. Right. Because they're so wealthy, they don't need any income. Right. So the first the first thing is that the tax laws then are, are rigged against the working class and, and really designed in favor of these millionaires already. Um, and how are they using their power to, to make this continue to be the case? Rich people are using their money to get more and more political power. And then they're using their newfound political power to change the rules to make themselves even richer. It's a very bad spiral that's spiraling out of control. In, um, in 2017, the Republican lawmakers in Washington rewrote the entire federal tax code. They passed the new Republican tax code on a party line vote. No Democrats voted for it, and basically every Republican did vote for it. So 
14 days after that tax bill passed, Paul Ryan got $500,000 from the Koch brothers. The Koch brothers then invested $20 million in a marketing campaign centered around the concept of job creators to try to sell this absurd plan to the American people. The amount of money that the Koch brothers are estimated to have saved on their tax bill from the 2017 Republican rewrite was about $1.5 billion. Wow. And so the built-in financial incentives are staggering. Um, And it is actually, as it turns out, relatively inexpensive to pay off a lawmaker. So the best return on investment, if someone is only looking at increasing their post-tax take home, the best gig in the tax code is to go buy off a bunch of lawmakers and make sure that your tax code doesn't go up. So, Erica, you talked about the 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 role of the Republicans and the, the kind of Trump tax cut. And I know Mitch McConnell played quite a role in all of this. And I think um, I think you were trying to give him a copy of your book. I mean, what? what? <laughs> yes. So what, tell, tell us about that. So what, what I mean, we, I think we're all familiar with Mitch McConnell as being, you know, Mr. Evil on many, many issues. But why is he why is he the bad guy on this tax the rich point? Well, I mean, look, the Republican Party has basically become a wholly owned subsidiary of conservative oligarchs in America. It's not more complicated than that. And so whatever social issues or this, that and the other thing they want to talk about, when it comes down to it, this is all about money. And it's all about rigging an economy to pr- create a permanent advantage for a very small number of people who happen to also be at the drawing board, drawing out what they want the economy to look like. And Mitch McConnell is their first lieutenant when it comes to driving those changes through in the Senate and the House. But he doesn't really have to work that hard, y'all. I mean, the whole the whole Republican Party is basically nothing but a barrel of corruption at this point owned by a bunch of billionaires. So it wasn't, wasn't that hard for, for him, really? Uh complicated. You know, Mitch McConnell wants to make sure that a very small number of people who fund him and his fellow Republicans campaign stay really rich so they can continue to fund their campaigns because on some level it's not, it's about money and power in the intersection of the two. And so the money delivers power and the power delivers money. This is really, I mean, the story is as old as time, you know, it's just gotten so out of hand that now we all have to pay attention to it and fix it. Talking of fixing it, you know, we have a new president in the White House. He's talking about capital gains, taxes being the same level as income taxes, you know, which it shouldn't be revolutionary, but it sent shockwaves around around the world, which says says something about how bad things have got. I mean, how optimistic are you now about the new administration? Do you think we will? You, let me put it this way. Do you think we've reached, when we look back, we'll, we'll, have we bottomed out? You know, how optimistic are you? I hope so. I think we've made a huge amount of progress over the last couple of years. These ideas have moved from fringe ideas a few years ago to being debated by people running for president this last election season to being talked about by the president of the United States and people in the Senate Finance Committee now. So, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, but I think we might win and I think we will win if other rich people speak up and call their senators and call their congressmen and explain to them that it really is in all of our interests that we change the course of our nation because it's not sustainable the way it is. Well, and I never want to be one who like 
um, dismisses the power of the other side because I've seen what they have done over the last, you know, call it 70 years of our history where tax rates for the richest people in the country and corporations has gone in one direction, which is down. But we do have a surprising leader here in the White House who is talking about reforms that would not just bring in more revenue to the federal government, because that's not really necessary, but that would unrig the economy. And we have an opportunity to do this with 51 Democratic votes. So we don't have to, the way the budget reconciliation, not to get too much into it, but basically to make the kinds of changes that Biden is talking about in the tax code, we need 51 senators. And we can get 51 senators with just Democrats and people who caucus with the Democrats. So right now, the entire ball game is about 10 or 12 Democratic senators who will be more reluctant than some of their more progressive colleagues to support the kinds of changes that Biden is promoting. So we right now have about a three or four month period where we can make dramatic and crucial reforms to our economy. So this is particularly a place where regular Americans, if you get involved for the next three to four months, we can fix this. Thank you. Thank you both of you for a fabulous interview. That was great, Nadia. I don't know. Have you got any more to ask? I think we'll leave it here, but unless there's anything else that you want to add for our listeners. Yeah, the one thing that I would say is if people want to learn more, go to taxtherich.com. You can see the book there and you can see and you can join the campaign to try to unrig this system. And we've even built, um, we're starting to expand into Europe. We have our first um, employee in the UK now, because we believe that we need to have a worldwide movement um, in order to address this on a global scale. So we're got a real focus on the US, particularly in the next three to four months. But over the coming years, you're going to see us expand quite a bit internationally. Um, because as Morris said earlier, this doesn't turn out for rich people either. So let's fix it for everybody. That's a fantastic message to end on and excited to see what comes next for the patriotic millionaires. Thanks so much to both of you for taking the time. This was great. Really brilliant. Thank you, Morrison. And thank you, Erica. Wonderful. Thank you. Happy to talk to you anytime. Bye. Bye. Well, that was a fascinating conversation. It was it was pretty interesting to hear Morris be so upfront about his wealth, right? Oh, uh, yeah. And just shocking that during the pandemic, while so many people have been going through so much, he and indeed billionaires have got so much richer. And and also, I like the, the point he made with it. Of course, he doesn't look at his bank account. Why would he ever look at his bank account? There's no need to because he, whatever he wants, he can just buy. So, yeah, I thought that was quite amazing. Yeah. Makes sense. And yeah, I mean, there was a lot, a lot of interesting things that came through in the conversation. And it was, you know, very focused on the US. Um, I guess, because that's what the, the patriotic millionaires do. And, and I guess they're expanding. But what happens in the US really does set the trend for the rest of the world. So it is a relevant conversation globally. It's a way to shift the narrative in the global sense when you see things shifting in the US. And it's not just about the U.S. leading by example, which I feel like they are doing and which they, they, they always do, but it's actually that they have the power and influence to move other governments because of, because of their, their powerful role globally. 
Oh, I think it's absolutely critical. If you think the patriotic millionaires are helping shift the debate in the US, the US is the most powerful country on earth. If that debate shifts there, then it will start to shift all over the world. And, th and this has happened before. I mean, the thing to remember is that, you know, th there's another history, which um, we've talked about before on the podcast, uh, where, where the US was a real leader after the war in taxing rich people. And it, it really, it, it, we really definitely have a situation where you had top rates of income tax of like 93%. You know, wow. you had um, taxes on capital, uh, and the, the income from capital was twice as high as it was on the income from working. You know, these were all in living memory. So I think it's great to see the US start to talk like that again. And it really... And it really, you know, what really struck me was when Morris said that uh, to you, your, your question about him being a traitor to his class, you know, that right. famous phrase that was used about Roosevelt. And and he said he, he, it wasn't the case, didn't he? he said it, it, I know, we're so surprised. Yeah, like his rich friends don't really disagree with high taxes. And there, maybe it's just a kind of wall, a crumbling wall of kind of ideology. If we just push it, it will crumble and... Most rich people will be happy to pay a bit more tax. Mm -hmm. I'd like to think so. So do you think, I mean, one, one question for me in all of this and in the last couple of months is we've had this race to the bottom and, and Erica's really clear on that. She goes, the other side have had a 70-year streak of taxes have gone in only one direction down on the right. ridge. And and do you think maybe we, we're hitting rock bottom? You know, do you think we, we're bottoming out and, you know, things are going to start getting better from now on. I mean, yeah, what, what do you think? I personally do think that there is a lot of momentum and, and I don't know that it can go much lower as as we we're saying. I mean, it's just gone down and down and down. It is pretty much, I mean, it's, it is bottoming out. But I mean, there's momentum from the global tax justice movement. There's momentum from, you know, politicians such as um, Janet Yellen has been, you know, very vocal now uh, in this new U.S. administration, but also with COVID um, and seeing revenues fall, seeing the just sheer inequality of, of, you know, rich corporations, especially in the tech industry, you know, just getting richer and richer. And, and just as Morris was saying, him getting richer and richer. I mean, I feel like it, it is this moment where we can see a big shift and and we could even see a global agreement on a minimum tax rate, for example, maybe even this summer, you know, things that were just a pie, you know, pie in the sky ideas a few years ago. We've we've come a long way. I think we, we can make progress here. I agree. I suppose I feel I feel strange about it. You know, if we look at the, the potential agreement on uh, a global corporate minimum tax rate, which could happen, uh, you know, very soon indeed, like at the G7 and the G20 this summer, in some ways, that is an amazing step forward to have that kind of global tax agreement. But at the same time, you know, the, the level they're talking about is 15%. I mean, that is appallingly low. You know, if you can, you know, corporate taxes in the US were around the 50% mark for like 30 years after the war. Wow. So I, I think I, I, I think we are seeing progress. But just like you said, we have got so bad and taxes on the rich are so low. Yeah. It's, 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 it's very hard to exaggerate just how appalling it is and how much higher we've got to climb. And I, I think as, as, as kind of progressives and activists, we need to keep moving the goalposts, you know, and keep demanding more, keep thinking like the other side. You know, I always imagine that, the, you know, in, in the mid 
mid 60s when taxes on the rich were at their highest there was a kind of right-wing think tank in washington with like a i don't even they even had whiteboards then they probably just had like a flip chart or something but they're having like a a, a brainstorm and, and no idea is too crazy and and someone puts up on the on the board you know a corporate tax rate of 15 percent, and then they get laughed out of the room of such an insane suggestion but they got there you know they basically destroyed corporate tax i think we need that kind of ambition we need to be having tax rates up around the 50% mark again, if we really want to beat inequality and get rid of billionaires. Sorry, I was going on there, but I, I, <laughs> I think it's really important. No, I mean, I'm with you. And I think that that is our role as civil society, right? To just keep pushing for, and and we've, you know, just this, I, it's so cliche, but pushing for the stars and you get to the moon. Um, but also, I mean, I think where we look for inspiration is also important. And I, I really feel it's important to give a shout out to Argentina on this episode who recently introduced a solidarity wealth tax um, on individuals. So it's like a, a one-off tax to help pay for medical supplies and um, support small and medium businesses and student scholarships. And, and it's basically this tax that's levied on Argentina's 12,000 richest people. So just a tiny percent of the population um, who are who have assets of over 2.5 million. And I mean, that alone is going to raise some $3.5 billion, they're estimating. So, I mean, there's just, you know, there are some really amazing examples out there as well. Um, and and so nice to see those kinds of things happening. No, absolutely. And I think and particularly on this issue of wealth taxation, I think we should, we, I think we'll see more wealth taxes uh, being applied in other countries. And as you say, it's kind of, if not now, when, you know, yeah. in, the, in the heat of this crisis, in the face of this economic calamity, you know, we cannot do what we did with the financial crisis and fail to increase progressive taxation and just end up with more austerity and more cuts. It, it's got to be different this time around. Absolutely. All right. And on that hopeful note, yep, let's all get get out there and, and fight to tax the rich. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And please do check out our blog uh, at equalshope.org and follow us on Twitter, Equals Hope. Nice to be with you, Max, and nice to, to be with you, everyone. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks, Nadia. Thanks, everyone. And see you next time.